since breaking that barrier, I've seen more African-Americans and in the profession, the director of the LA Zoo is an African-American woman. The director of the Philadelphia Zoo is an African-American woman. The director of Georgia Aquarium is an African-American man. I think it's just the four of us uh, out of 240 zoos. I think once you see somebody that looks like you in a, in a position, it, it automatically says, I can do that. You know, one of the things my mom, when I was young, she said, you can do anything you want to do, anything. But for us, you may have to do it better and the best. Mm -hmm. um, you may have to jump through more hoops than anyone else, but you can accomplish it. That's how I've gone about my career and my life is I can do that um, if, if I choose to do it. And there may be some rough patches, but... You know, you have to have the patience and the persistence to continue to work through it. Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase, rise and shine. Now look here, folks. I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or a 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. Welcome to the Wise and Wine podcast with your host, Jen with two N's. I have been stalking this guest for months. And when I say stalking, I'm almost embarrassed by the number of messages I've sent him via LinkedIn. But we finally found a time that worked for both of us. And I'm beyond excited to present to you this episode with Amos Morris, who is the director of the Milwaukee County Zoo. I don't know why I had never considered that that there's a whole career, but there's a whole industry around zoos. I've been to zoos more times than I can count. And I know that there's a hundred people running around, but when you sit down and think about a zoo being basically a city and somebody's got to manage all that, there has to be somebody in charge of the food, the entertainment, the education, the animals, the supplies, like there's so much that goes into a zoo that I hadn't even considered. And so talking to Amos, I really got some insight into the strategy behind what a zoo looks like, the strategy behind how do we design this space for children, but also not just for children, that we design it for people that are going on their first date, or we design it for people that are over 21. So there's a lot that goes into that. But then also thinking about the care and nurturing of the animals, thinking about creating closures that is something I hadn't considered. So yeah, I learned a ton about just kind of the inner workings of, of a zoo through Mr. Morris's presentation, but also considering that he's been in the industry for way more than 30 years, that, that he's seen so many 
changes. And not only from the technology, the enclosures, the food, the entertainment, but I think how animals are cultivated and managed in the zoo. I think that technology has changed and he talks about that. But I also wanted to know about what is it like to be the first and the only. And until he mentioned it and until he talked about it, I had no idea that he was only one of four Black directors in all of the zoos and aquariums across the United States. And that's kind of a big responsibility. And he does talk a little bit about the pressure that he feels to be the first and to be the only, what he does with that, and a little bit of the pressure that he feels in that situation, which mirrors one of my past guests, that's Desi Williams. She won a season of Survivor and she won a season of MTV's The Challenge. She started her own business and she talked about kind of the pressure that she felt. So it's interesting to me to see that these two people from different generations, they're from different genders, they work in completely different industries, they share that pressure to be representative of the community and to be excellent and to excel in their work. I would say my favorite thing about talking to Mr. Morris is just, he's just this calming presence. You know, he describes himself as a stout man. And that reminds me of my dad, just this big guy, but that kind of walks softly and carries a big stick. That guy that you, he commands presence because of who he is, but he also leads with a care for other people. So I don't know. I I definitely have a a professional crush. I definitely, if I'm ever in uh, the Milwaukee area, we'll certainly look him up. So I hope that you are as captivated as I after listening to today. Well, good morning, Mr. Morris. Welcome to Wise and Wine. I know it's very early in the morning where you are, so unlikely that you're drinking anything uh, alcoholic at this hour. But if you could, later in the evening, what would you choose? Well, considering that I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. What? um, Yeah. uh, I will probably be drinking a root beer. (laughs) (laughs) never in your life no yeah never never in my life it's a it's a little interesting story my my family has a a poor history with alcohol um my uncles were indulging uh, indulgence of of the substance and when I graduated from high school my mom asked me to do one thing just one thing in my life and it was to stay away from alcohol so I've kept that commitment and uh, I just, I don't like the smell of it. And, you know, why, why drink it if you can't stand the smell? So yeah, plus going, I promised my mom. <laughs> I know you're, and you're a good, good son. I promised my parents yes, a lot I of am. things. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we are talking to you today because I'm so fascinated by your career in the zoo industry. I feel like I've been to the zoo my whole life and I never really thought about the people that work behind it and, and about the business of what a zoo looks like. So want to dive into this, but in my research, I found that elephants are your favorite animal. Why is that? Um, you know, I, I, I just always like the big, the bigger animals. Um, they're very intelligent. Uh, they're one of the few animals that, um, we still have a certain level of, uh, contact, uh, in the zoo. Um, and it's just a, they're a complex species, uh, just intriguing. 
so to big. say the least. They're so big. <laughs> They're so big. Yeah. And I, I had kind of a controversial and I'd be interested to get your feedback on this. Um, my husband and I were in Indonesia and we were at one of those parks where you can interact with the animals. Um, I believe the one we picked was more of a rehabilitation one where like there was something happened to them um, in the wild. And so they were kept here for protection. Um, mm -hmm. And so we did get to hang out with the, with the elephants and until like, I've seen them in the zoo, but until you're standing next to it, <laughs> you realize how massively huge they are. They are the they're the biggest terrestrial mammal on our earth. It's, um, you know, they can be upwards of 13,000 pounds. Wow. Uh, and can sneak up on you and not even hear them. So oh. they're, they're just pretty incredible. Okay. So have you um, done any like travel where maybe you've seen them in like in the wild in Africa or any place like that, or you, you mainly interact with yeah. the animals in the zoo? No, yes, I, I I do a fair bit of traveling. I've um I've been to South America, I've been to Africa twice, uh been throughout Europe. Um, but uh I I did an elephant project in um South Africa, Kruger National Park. We were uh removing some radio collars from a herd of elephants. And so I spent five days trying to find those particular elephants. And um, we uh, immobilize them and remove their collars. Um, but I've also uh, led tourist groups uh, to Africa, uh, in Tanzania. Um, I've got a I've got a trip scheduled for twelve people um, later this year to Namibia, oh, wow. um, which will be pretty fun. Okay. Now, my husband and I are currently traveling through South America. So, where did you go? I was in Peru. Peru, oh. uh, which is yeah, which is actually one of my favorite spots, uh, is Peru. So oh. we went down into the uh, Tampampara rainforest, which is on the border of Bolivia and Peru. Okay, and uh, spent quite a few days in that area. Um, of course, went to Machu Picchu. I've been there twice. Uh, it's a very spiritual spiritual spot for me. It. it it's just you get this overwhelming feeling of peace uh, for me when I was there. So um, very fond of Peru. Yes. That, and that is I think we're we're in Brazil now. Uh, we're going to do Argentina next and then uh, Chile and then Peru. So we'll definitely do Machu Picchu. And my husband had gone before. Right when we met, he had a trip planned and he said that, yeah, that, that Machu Picchu was life changing. So we're going to get to go there and hopefully with my knee, I can climb and I'm so worried about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, at least they can bus you up to the top, the, the road zigzags up to the top. I, I wouldn't have hiked up that far. I did my first trip out. I did go up to Huayna Picchu, which is that peak when you see the picture of, of Machu Picchu and there's a peak at the top, hmm. that's Huayna Picchu. And you can, you can hike up that. Um, I was able to do that at that time, um, which is, it's a unique experience, but man, when you get up to Machu Picchu, it, uh, it just, you know, the technology and, and the craftsmanship and yeah. the way they lived, it's pretty incredible. I can't wait. I can't wait. All right. So that's enough about travel. Tell me about your career path and how it's been influenced by your family, particularly your parents who are teachers, as well as your culture. Well, my parents were teachers. My dad was a biology teacher and my mom was a home economics teacher. 
and a librarian. Um, both received their master's degrees, which uh, was was pretty exceptional back in the day. Um, and you know, oddly, the animal person in my family was my mom. Um, she grew up on a farm and uh, um, just loved animals. We always had dogs in the house, not so much cats because my sisters were allergic to cats. <laughs> uh, but we had lizards, we had turtles, we, you know, and it was all because of my mom, where I thought when I was younger, it was my dad's doing uh, because of the biology, but uh, it turned out to be my mom. Okay. Um, from an early age, uh, when when I was a kid, we were only allowed to watch a few channels, a few programs. And in that, that was uh, Disney's Wild Kingdom, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, he had National Geographic. We were, we were, we could watch some cartoons Saturday mornings, but any of the other TV was nature associated. So from a very young age, I wanted to work with animals at some point, but I didn't know at the time. I first I thought it was marine mammals because I was intrigued with Jacques Cousteau. But um uh I wanted to work wanted to work with animals. So when I went to college, uh I first set out uh to get a degree in marine science and um it just it didn't it didn't match with my scholarship. I was a, a mm. football player, and the evening evening uh, afternoon was dedicated to practice. And in a lot of the hard sciences, your labs and everything were in the afternoon. So the marine science program just didn't match that programming. Mm. Uh, and football was paying me to go to school, so I had to make some. Uh, <laughs> academic adjustments, but I later made academic, academic adjustments and ended up transferring out of that school and went to the University of Missouri, where okay. I did graduate with a degree in animal science. I did play football there, but um, I I had walked on there. And so my, my primary concern was uh, getting an education. So I got a degree in animal science. I worked uh, in the research labs uh, on the farms, took care of pigs, sheep, goats, uh, cattle, dairy cattle, everything. Um, I later I met a gentleman who was the curator of mammals at the St. Louis Zoo uh, my junior year in college and just talked to him for quite some time. He was doing a genetics study uh, with one of our genetics professors and it just captured me. It, I knew at that time that I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a curator. So I, when I graduated, I had applied at all the zoos in the country and I had no luck. And uh, I called this gentleman and I said, look, I graduated two years. I don't have a job. I don't want to be a, a research tech. Uh, you got some suggestions. So he called me up to the zoo and I didn't realize it was an interview, but I sat with him and I sat with the zoo director at the time and uh, they hired me on the spot. Okay. Uh, and I started two days after graduation as a zookeeper and um, worked as a zookeeper for uh, there for about a little less than four years. I uh, worked with uh, antelope and zebra and giraffe, gained a lot of experience. But after I, you know, felt that I, I grasped the zookeeping piece of, of zoo work my goal was to be a curator so I I knew I needed to be a supervisor and I had uh 
I applied at the Dallas Zoo as an area supervisor and, and took that job and moved there. So most of my career I, I in moving, I've worked at seven zoos. And huh. in that, I was building my career, you know, up with experience. From Dallas uh, as a supervisor, I went to the Detroit Zoo as a assistant curator from the Detroit Zoo to the Roger Williams Park Zoo in Rhode Island as a general curator uh, from Roger Williams Park Zoo in Rhode Island to Pittsburgh as a curator of mammals. Uh, and then at Pittsburgh, something kind of stuck with me. It hit me. And it was in order to really provide great care for the animals, the keepers and the staff who take care of them uh, really needed to be taken care of professionally too. Mm. So it was, it was, it wasn't just about the animals, it became about the people. And for me, I'm one to want to do that at the highest level. So uh, being the zoo director then was that next goal. And um, I took a job at the uh, Mesker Park Zoo and Botanic Garden in Evansville, Indiana. And I was their uh, executive director and zoo director for eight years. Um, left there to go to Fresno, California as their deputy director and chief operating officer. Uh, that move was strictly to uh, <laughs> uh, gain some experience in construction and building. They That zoo has uh, had a lot of resources and uh, we built um, a couple of really nice facilities. The Kingdoms of Asia, which was an Asian exhibit with tigers and orangutans and Amistima crocodiles and songbirds and a whole bunch of stuff. And I also, we also built a new, uh, what we called the Zooplex, which was a commissary type thing with, uh, for the staff and for processing food. Um, I stayed there for about four years and the opportunity that Milwaukee County came up and uh, it brought me back to the Midwest and uh, it was just a good opportunity. Um, and a much, much larger zoo. Uh, Fresno Fresno was a little less than 50 acres, where uh, Milwaukee is 200 acres. Wow. Uh, much larger animal collection and diverse collection of animals. So I'm now the, the zoo executive director there. And I'm, I'm, so. I'm, I apologize for my faces. I'm making faces because I'm originally from California, so I can't imagine. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Fresno's not the most interesting place to live. So I'm, I'm sure the zoo was wonderful. But once you left the zoo, first, you're like, oh, I live in Fresno. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, surprisingly, <laughs> Fresno was, was kind of country, you know, is a lot of agriculture. Um, big city, but, you know, pretty much an agricultural city. The Fresno State's there. Uh, my son actually is is a senior at Fresno State oh, really? uh, okay. right now, so um, yeah, I, you know we enjoyed it. You know, this it's hot, <laughs> it's kind of the desert, but um, uh, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm from uh, the southern part, more coastal, so it's just a, a very big change to go from San Diego to Fresno. <laughs> oh, most certainly. Yeah, <laughs> most certainly. Well, you you thank you for that extensive walk through career path. I still have a lot of questions. Like, what is a? I'm thinking about like what does a zookeeper do every day? And also, you've mentioned curator a couple times. So, what does a curator do? 
So the zookeeper is responsible for the day-to-day -day care of the animals and observations and knowing their animals. So they clean up after the animals. So all the hay and all the other, you know, urine and feces, they pick all that up, take it out, uh, make sure the animals are well fed, make sure they're enriched. So we do things to enrich their lives to make it more interesting. If uh, an animal needed to be treated, we'd hand we'd we'd hand grab those or uh, animals or train them so that the veterinarians can get their hands on them. Okay. Uh, we did a lot of observations. Uh, we just needed to know our animals because we were their we were their their voice, so to speak, as a zookeeper. Right. As a curator or an area supervisor, area supervisor is responsible for scheduling, making sure that. The staff have what they need to do their day-to-day -day jobs, orders the rakes, the shovels, the uh, uh, make sure that the food is there, kind of coordinates with the maintenance department, all those things that that are around the animal they're, they're responsible for. As a curator, you're responsible for the acquisition and disposition of animals. Okay. Um, when you, uh, decisions to breed or not breed animals, you're working with other zoo professionals to uh, manage the populations. Um, you're doing collection planning. Uh, you're working with the education department. Your hands are in, in almost everything from fundraising to daily care. You you kind of play that role. Gotcha. All right. So your zoo that you're at now has 149 full-time staff members, 120 seasonal employees, 2,100 plus specimens representing 330 different species so what does a day in the life look like for you at the zoo and what is something that would surprise the general public about the operations the the career of of working in a zoo well a zoo is kind of like a big city hmm. um we have uh we have food service we have law enforcement or security um we have a maintenance team uh, we have a guest services team, so we want to make sure your visit is, is enjoyable and that you're, you, all you have to worry about is seeing animals or having fun. Um, we, uh, uh, the, at every level, it, it, the, the job is a little different. Um, <clears throat> you would, you would think that I would hope I try very hard to get out into the zoo and see uh, at least a section of, of the animals every day. I, I I like to see the staff out in the zoo. I I believe in, you know, being present uh, for people to get their questions answered or um, to meet their needs. Um, and I, I don't want them to have to come to me. I want to go to them uh, to make it convenient for them to, to engage. For me, I'm, I'm, I spend a little chunk of time out in the zoo and um, I can't hit the whole zoo. I can hit the whole zoo in one day, but if I do that, half of my day is gone. And <laughs> I, I, I'm responsible for the, for the budget, for everything inside the gate. So uh, a lot of my time is spent behind the computer or talking to someone on the phone from outside the area or solving problems within the zoo. Uh, I've got an incredible staff. I have five division heads that uh, run their departments. Um, from finance to animal care to uh, operations, which is guest services to maintenance and to marketing. With that team, we we tend to the operation of the zoo. 
So even, you know, we have events at the zoo. So uh, we have an events team that uh, sets all that up. And, um, you know, we, we um, program that. Sometimes it's during the day. Sometimes it's in the evening. We really want people to think of the zoo more as a resource for everybody. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, you got to have kids to come to the zoo. And that's not the case at all. Um, <laughs> no. I try to remind young kids it's a perfect space for a date. Your first date out, you know, if you're walking around and it's not clicking, you can at least just look at the animals and <laughs> still have a still have a good time without, you know, the pressure of uh, being next to each other or, or engaging. Um, so it's it's a good spot for the first date, um, you know, or if, you know, you're really clicking, then you can sit on the bench and talk and hold hands. So, um, but yet you're surrounded by people, so you can't right. get in too much trouble. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Good <laughs> so, but for adults over 21, we have a lot of over 21 um, activities. Um, we try to carve out in some of our uh, events um, days where it's just adults can come and there's no kids. Um, just, just to shake it up for the community. So having been at seven different zoos, what changes have you seen in the industry and what are some current issues that the industry is facing today? The first thing that popped in my head was like the pandemic. Like how did, how did the zoo operate during the pandemic when we couldn't go out? Yeah, the, um, we, we function with essential staff. Um, the two zoos that I, cause I, I was at Fresno when it started and ended in Milwaukee in Fresno, we were closed for a chunk of that time. Uh, we still retained our staff. We had a couple grants uh, from the government. Um, and what we did is, you know, the guest services staff, since there was no guests, educational staff, um, since, since we weren't running education programs, they were weeding and painting and tending to the facilities. So we knew we knew we were going to open at some point and we wanted the zoo to really look good. So we kept people busy. Um, we uh, had we then did the, you know, work at home piece. Um, so we had some staff that could do that, um, that could work at home. But the staff that was at the zoo, we considered essential staff mm. and the government considered it essential staff. So. Yeah. Um, we were allowed to have staff come to the zoo, take care of their animals, work their day. Um, when they were by themselves, they could be unmasked. When they were with colleagues, they had to be masked. Uh, we went through that period. Um, we had some animals that were highly susceptible to COVID. Um, mm. Tigers are, are very susceptible to COVID. Really? Oh. So we had to be mindful of that too. So in the tiger area, even though the keeper was by themselves, they were masked to protect the tiger. Okay. Um, so we had to keep those things in mind. Some of the primates, our bonobos, our gorillas, um, we had to be mindful that they could catch it as well. Um, and uh, in the beginning, it was just as uh, severe as it was for the human population. Wow. Um, the only difference is, is we didn't have to worry about uh, hospital capacity. Hmm. Uh, a lot of a lot of our our country's issues was really hospital capacity, and uh, if if the pandemic really took off, the people, you know, in some areas of the country, they were seeking medical care in a tent. Right. Um, so, but in the zoo, we have uh, a veterinary team and facilities that we can we can manage our our animals without 
you know, having to take them out somewhere. So COVID was a, was a, was a challenge, but we, we, we've obviously gotten through it. So. Perfect. All right. So on the non-global pandemic scale, what are some issues that are facing the industry currently? Oh, okay. So some of the issues and uh, well, first some of the changes, you know, now when I was a zookeeper, it was pretty hands-on when it came to trying to uh, manage your animals. Um, you know, my first day, I caught like 19 kangaroos by hand. And um, that was <laughs> that was an experience. And it actually, you know, solidified the fact that I wanted to stay in the business because it was just incredibly fun. Okay. Um, but um, we don't we don't really do that much anymore. We've really embraced the positive reinforcement training. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can accomplish uh, with positive reinforcement opera conditioning training. Uh, with the animals and everything from giving them an injection voluntarily uh, to checking their teeth, to checking their feet, uh, to trimming their nails, all of that, where it used to be in my day, we just had to catch them and do that. <laughs> um, now they're trained to come up to the barrier and they can get an exam and all that. So that that's changed a great deal in the modalities of animal care. Right. We also, we have, we want to stay relevant. Right. The people, our culture has changed dramatically uh, as far as the empathy for animals and um, uh, them being in human care. Um, so zoo enclosures have increased in size and complexity. Uh, we really try hard to give animals choices uh, in their day, uh, whether it be to seek comfort, whether it be to for food, uh, to get away from a, a cohort or uh, someone who shares their exhibit, um, we want to give them choices. And so we build those exhibits to accomplish that. Uh, and depending on the species, like a primate, you want to have really high elevated structures for them to get to. And then most primates are in large troops. So you want to have hidey holes or places where they could hide if they want to, or they don't have to see the other, the knucklehead primate that's giving them a hard time for that day. You know, primates kind of escalate to some of our behaviors or we escalate to their behaviors sometimes. <laughs> but, so you want to manage that in the exhibit. And we're doing more of that now than we used to. So that's that's definitely changed over time. Okay. Uh, you will begin to see, you know, where we have 2,100 animals in our in our population at the zoo. You may see that number drop because we're capitalizing on that space and giving those single animals more space in order to exercise choice okay. um, and to give them a better uh, uh, exhibit for the guests to experience as close to a natural behaving animal as they can be. So that that's kind of changed over the years. Okay. Your next question was, I, I, I'm trying to take it. What was there? There's another compartment that I, I, you know, I need, I have to work on asking people like one succinct question instead of one with six. <laughs> I'm sorry. Parts. No, no, that's my fault. <laughs> I think I was asking what changes have you seen in the industry along with the current yeah. issue? So, I mean, you've been at this so, since 1987, so I imagine you've seen some some change in the industry. Yeah, so current issues, uh, again, go back to um, we're really focusing on empathy and well-being. Um, when you think of well-being, you think of happiness. Um, when I started in the profession, we didn't place any emotions 
uh, on animals at the time, you know, happy. How do you know if the animal is happy or not? You know, <laughs> uh, now we spend more, we spend a lot of time uh, talking about welfare and wellness and well-being and uh, really, really trying to meet uh, the animal's needs in a holistic manner um, and engaging our guests so that they are connecting with the animals and understanding that, you know, a zoo is a conservation uh, facility. And we do a lot of work out in the field as well as in the zoo. I think what most some people don't recognize is probably 90% of the zoo, animals in the zoo are born in the zoo. Mm. In that, you know, back... 40, 50 years ago, um, a lot of animals were wild caught. Went to Africa, grabbed them, pulled them out of Africa, put them in a zoo. Uh, we don't we don't hardly do that anymore, um, unless it's a need to save a species from extinction. Um, a lot of animals are bred in in human care. Um, they live their lives in human care, uh, and it's a genetic reservoir for the wild population. So. We've moved dramatically away from uh, wild-caught animals. And I think to your point, too, with the world changing and, and there being more of a focus on things like sustainability and, and impact and focus on endangered species, I think maybe having the internet um, opened us up to knowing what's happening in different species across the world and what's happening globally. So how do zoos address issues of sustainability, impacts on land and, and endangered species? Well, um, from endangered species, we uh, we try to, number one, educate our guests so that they recognize that they share this planet with other beings and that most problems are, are created from our behavior human behavior on the environment and our pressure on the environment. So we spend a lot of time uh, engaging our guests uh, in that capacity. Um, we do have some zoos are out in the field doing hardcore research, understanding the pressures that animals go through so that uh, when it comes time to protect that area of the world, people know what they need to do to do that. And we, you still have to coexist. Everybody has, you know, we, we have a hard time coexisting and accepting each other as humans. Just so imagine coexisting with the animals that exist around us. And we try to uh, understand animals behavior so that we can stitch that into law and regulations to protect an area uh, for animals. Uh, we learn about, holy capacity and and what is a, what is a healthy environment for animals to be in because you can you can take an elephant and an elephant in a in a hundred acres you take 10 elephants in a hundred acres uh in short order and it could be completely wooded uh and in short order they'll deplete that whole piece of land from vegetation if you allow them to right. to propagate and eat and if you don't rotate them out or give them other space. Um, and that happens in Africa where uh, elephants will come in. They're a keystone species and they sculpt the earth and they rip trees out of the ground to eat. And um, if you allow them to, 
to to do that at will and it's just in a specific area it'll deplete that whole area and all those animals that coexist with them have to move out because there's no food for them um, so you have to we have to understand and learn about how those interactions take place and uh, uh, how our behavior human behavior affects that and zoos are instrumental in trying in working to do that you know i see over a million people come through my gate Great. which that gives me a million people to educate and there's no better place to uh, see and experience animals than your zoo or your conservation center um, there's one thing to see an elephant on tv you you've experienced it uh, but to see it in in right in front of you in real time uh, really develops a high level of empathy and care for those animals. And I, I don't think you can do that without seeing them. And, you know, the average inner city kid is not going to Africa. Yeah. Um, They're not going to South America. Yeah. Um, that That's, you know, there's a select few folks that will get that opportunity. And uh, where else are they going to experience it? Right. Yeah. So that's one of the important pieces of having a zoo in your community. Yeah. And and to your point about you being sparked as a kid, you know, it's one thing to see it on TV and it's another thing to see it kind of in person. And even as an adult, um, my husband and I lived in Texas before we started traveling internationally. So we have been to the Dallas Zoo and it's the it's it's so impressive. It's so massive. I think we clocked. uh how many miles we walked that day. So even just for exercise, I think we must oh, yeah. have walked like yeah. 15 miles that day it was something crazy. Um, but I think the giraffes, I don't know why the giraffes were so fascinating to me. I think because it's like, they're just there. You know what I mean? It's not like a tiger that's behind a, a cage or anything like the giraffes are just kind of hanging out. And, yeah. so, and I'm sure the the zoo people hated us because we were feeding it, whatever the plants were around the enclosure, ah. we were feeding it to the, to the giraffes. But I'm like, well, if it's here, it's probably okay. Cause they could eat it themselves, <laughs> but they kept. Yeah. We like them. to save our vegetation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was so fun. But we also try to focus and give you that opportunity. So a lot of zoos have, you know, feed the giraffe moments and you get to do that. Yeah. But my husband is cheap and didn't want to pay for the food. So, yeah. <laughs> so. tell him it goes to take care of the animal. Uh, that's true. That's true. I'll, I'll work on him with that next time. All right. So as I said, you began your career in 1987 and you became the first black zoo director in an accredited zoo in the country and the first black zoo director in Milwaukee. What has been your experience as a person of color uh, not only in the zoo industry, but outdoors. You strike me as an outdoorsy person. Yeah, I am an outdoorsy person. <laughs> I, I grew up hunting and fishing and I'm a big fisherman now. Um, I practice traditional archery and uh, I'm outside a lot. Um, you know, in the, in the beginning, um, as a zookeeper, I was pretty welcomed. Um, I was uh, rewarded for good, good work, uh, just like everyone else. Um, but when it came to try to move up in our profession, it, it, you know, in some places there were doors, there was, you know, heavy doors, hmm. um, where, uh, you know, you can look at it as, you know, fortunately they told me I would never, you know, ex never grow at their facility. You just can't see an African-American 
uh, being a manager there. And when they told me that I left because that's right. not what I wanted. Right. Um, and, you know, shame on them. I, I didn't seek to sue or anything like that. I just, you know, my goal is I wanted a career working with animals. Right. Um, so I would, you know, I go to another facility and, and, uh, uh, try to, try to do excellence, be excellent, be, be the best that I could be, be the best area supervisor that I could be. Um, now, you know, some folks, you know, would go, you know, I've heard the phrase, well, you know, what's it work working for a black guy? <laughs> Yikes. And I would say, I don't know. I've never worked for a black guy before. So, <laughs> you know, we'll go on this journey together. Um, you know, it, it you know, I, I also think, you know, fortunate for me, I, I'm a rather stout individual. So, <laughs> you know, I, if I walk into a room, I, I, I carry a presence, I think. And, um, you know, I, I try to move through my space with confidence, uh, but with humility and I treat people with a great deal of respect. And, uh, and I also, uh, uh, believe people need to be who they are. You know, they can be hateful, just don't take it out on me. And I'm don't hateful to me or the people that I love. You can go on about be hateful. Um, uh, and I, I've always respected that. And, uh, but with that, people saw a different side of humanity, I, I think. Uh, I had many individuals say, man, I, I just didn't recognize that. I just saw the color of your skin. I didn't, I didn't even recognize that you could, you could be a nice guy, you know? Um, so those were, those were the early years, hmm. um, you know, but I, I, I didn't focus on the negativity I, and I didn't focus on wanting to be the first or or any of that my goal was to be a curator and i wanted to be respected as an animal professional um and had it and developed a great deal of knowledge with my animals and uh people had confidence in sending me their animals they knew they would be well taken care of uh, and people who received animals from my department uh, knew that they were well taken care of. So that's what I focused on throughout my whole career. And just, I, I do think we, we, we carry an added sense of pressure by being the only the one only. or whatever. What I will tell you, what, what has been rewarding is since, since breaking that barrier, I've seen more African-Americans in the profession and in the profession being leaders. The director of the LA Zoo is an African-American woman. Oh, wow. The director of the Philadelphia Zoo is an African-American woman. Okay. The director of Georgia Aquarium is an African-American man. So I think, I think it's just the four of us uh, in uh, out of 240 zoos. So use you know one of my philosophy one of my thoughts of you know getting people interested of color in in the profession is they've got to see someone doing it. That opens the door in itself. Um I you know I think people you have to qualify, you have to do, get your education, you have to get your experience. You've got to be able to compete, but 
I think once you see somebody that looks like you in a in a position, it, it automatically says, I can do that. Um, it can be open to me. Um, you know, one of the things my mom, when I was young, besides the alcohol, stay away from it. Um, she said, you can do anything you want to do, anything. She said, but for us, you may have to do it better and the best. Um, you may have to jump through more hoops than anyone else, but you can accomplish it. Um, and that's, that's how I've gone about my career and my life is I can do that. Um, if, if I choose to do it and there may be some rough patches, but you know, you have to have the patience and the persistence to continue to work through it. And I think that has built my management style and has helped me to be successful. Your mom sounds like a real nice, a real smart lady. <laughs> um, so I discovered you, I don't know if I shared this with you because I currently work for um, a nonprofit organization that's helping or rather we're a for-profit organization that's helping nonprofit organizations diversify their leadership and work on diversification strategies and recruitment and things like that. And so I was doing some research for um, the minorities in Stark science and the uh, black and marine science organizations. And I discovered the association, the association of minority zoo and aquarium professionals. And that's how I ran across you. So it's mm -hmm. nice to know that, even if there's few in the industry, that there's opportunities for um, associations to form and grow. So what is your role with the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals and kind of how are they serving to build up um, a new generation of zoo professionals? I, my, my association, um, I you know, was involved early, early in its development um, and I, I haven't, um, participated, uh, like maybe I should. Um, but, um, the one thing it does do, it does expose individuals. If they're interested in it, they get in the website, they dig in and they see, they see once again, themselves, uh, in roles, uh, in the zoo profession. Um, and then they can seek out individuals for questioning and, and uh, to see how they navigated the profession to get to where they were at. Exposure, creating dialogue, being there on the internet, um, connecting with leadership seekers uh, like Canopy, uh, which is a zoo headhunter. Uh, they, they create a dialogue for the topic and uh, people can, you're not out there trying to figure it out on your own. Um, I was, I was out there figuring it out on my own, looking at magazines, trying to figure out who to call, who to talk to, who to get in front of. We didn't have internet wasn't as prevalent in the eighties. Um, so it was Amos driving to the zoo and trying to meet, you know, the curators or whatever. And they said, oh, they're not available today. And they'd be off in their office, you know, so I, it, it it's a different level of persistence. And humility, because there was a lot of rejection. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, as my mom said, you can do whatever you want to do, but you have to be persistent and uh, you're going to have to put up with a lot of silliness and uh, just keep knocking.
you, you can get there. All right, Mr. Morris. Well, my last question for you is, if you were to look 10 years into the future, what would you like to see to know that you've been successful? Um, I, I would like for the zoo that I'm responsible for to have extraordinary care of their animals, uh, like to see the zoo growing and looking like a modern uh, zoo, like to see it in the top 20 zoos in the country in the next 10 years. And I'd like to see people of all cultures enjoying the zoo and uh, not only from a guest standpoint, but uh, uh, a rainbow uh, of color and on our staff and our teams and doing great things. I'd like to, I'd like my staff to grow. They don't have to grow here with me, but if they're out there doing and they're achieving their goals and I, I was able to help them a little bit, uh, that would be uh, rewarding. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure meeting you. If anybody wanted to find you or more information about your zoo or maybe the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals, that's so long. <laughs> <laughs> so long. Where can they find all of um, you can find it on 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 their website. Uh, there's a lot of information there. They also highlight uh, individuals. Uh, if you're interested in the zoo profession, you can go to aza.org, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, uh, give you a sense of what an accredited zoo is like and what it means. Um, there's also the Association of Zookeepers, the American Association of Zookeepers, AAZK, uh, can give you information about being a zookeeper. I can be found at the Milwaukee County Zoo, get to our website, and uh, I believe there's a link to contact the zoo, and you can request to speak to Amos Morris. Right. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure meeting you. you I'm sorry too. it took us so long to get together. <laughs> no, better late than never. I'm glad I got to talk to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Wise and Wine podcast. Don't forget, episodes come out every Tuesday wherever you find podcasts. Remember to rate, subscribe, and review. You can also find information about my guests on my Instagram page at Wise and Wine Podcast or send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns at wiseandwine at gmail.com. So I hope that our time today helps you pass the time on your commute, pass the time on the treadmill, or pass the time while you're working on those TPS report. And hopefully you left this day a little wiser. Have a great day. Bye-bye.